Hey, uh, good morning, Christ City Church. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, thank you to all of you for joining us online. Uh, thank you for lending your prayers and your presence to this virtual gathering. Uh, we've got a few folks here uh, in the office, grateful to have uh, a few more folks with us. It is an honor uh, to be among you today. Uh, listen, if you are newer to our online community, my name is Matthew, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors at uh, Christ City Church, and I just want to say I'm grateful that you're here. Um, <clears throat> this past week, uh, my wife Lisa and I, we uh, had a chance, we took a trip to see Lisa's mom, who lives uh, in the mountains of Western Maryland. Now, she's lived out there for like 20 years, and I've taken the drive a number of times over our eight years of living in D.C., but I'm going to promise you, I, every time, I just I get lost going out there. She's not moved, same spot, 20 years, but still, I can't find my way to get over there. Now, it's in the mountains, it's kind of out in the country, so, you know, I mean, my GPS sort of, like, it cuts out part of the way there. But, I, I mean, the truth is, like, I'm not the best with directions anyway. I mean, I, I hear you, amen, over there. Uh, I sort of drive you know, like by feel, if you don't know what I mean. Like when I'm driving, I can't tell you how to go, but I just sort of get to the turn. I'm like, oh, you know, I know which way. And I just sort of feel my way to the destination, and I know the directions when I get there. Now, you know, I don't know if anybody else is with me on this, but most of the time it works out until it doesn't. And next thing I know, I'm lost in the country, like with no GPS. Everything is unfamiliar, and everything looks the same. And I'm a little worried because I think, you know, I'm passing this bad directions gene. It's not just me. Like, I feel like I'm passing it on to my kids. Now, let me tell you this. A couple months ago, I was with my sons. We were driving around the Capitol, and it was before the fencing came down. And so I couldn't go my normal way to get from point A to point B. So I'm like, man, I'm not sure which way to go. Nathan, my oldest son, he's in the car with me, and he says, I know how to get home. So I'm like, cool, which way, chief? So and then this dude, like, he sends me down blocked roads, has me going the wrong way on one ways. I mean, it was like a circus. We're just, like, making loops here. And the crazy thing was we knew where we were. But still, we were lost. And then finally, Nathan looks at me and confesses, I don't know how to get us home in a car. But if we were on bikes, we would do exactly what I'm telling you. And, you know, I'm like, okay, fair enough. On a bike, you can, like, ride on sidewalks and dip through cuts. And, you know, you can do that. But when I'm rolling in my 2011 SUV, I can't slip through the promenade and come out on the other side on Pennsylvania Avenue heading eastbound. I got to go a different way. Now, I was thinking about these two instances. And those two dynamics and how it is that sometimes we just get lost. We get lost by accident. One thing leads to another and to another and you run into one ways and no ways and do not enters and, and, and you don't know how to get out of the loop that you're in. And you know where you are or you, you have an idea at least, but, but you're still lost. Because you can be lost in a familiar place, but it's lost nonetheless. Other times we get lost and it's actually on purpose. I mean, it's on purpose more or less. We didn't do what was in our best interest. We didn't follow the advice or the wisdom or experience of others. And going on our own ways, it didn't lead us to the spots that we wanted to arrive at. And things are just so unfamiliar. We don't know which way or ways to go. And so, and so we're lost. It's in those times where we just need someone to either guide us forward to the place where we want to get to or someone to take us back to the last clear spot where we knew where we was 
and where we needed to head. The book of Galatians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to people who had gotten lost. They just, they just lost their way in their journey of faith. They, they started out okay, but then they took some familiar paths that only took them to familiar places, and it wasn't taking them to the destination of faith and faithfulness that God had intended and had in store for them. So they were lost. Paul's letter to the Galatians, to the church in Galatia, it's a friend's attempt to help them find their way again. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we started this series on Galatians, a series that we entitled Be Free. And the title comes from one of the prevailing themes, one of the central themes of Paul's letter. It's a, it's a prevailing reminder, an, an ongoing set of directions from Paul to the church community in Asia Minor. Be free. Be free from the yokes of of religion and religious justification and live in light of Jesus' liberating work on the cross and its implications for our lives. He's calling them to freedom. The anchoring passage for us is a passage that's been like our North Star as we've walked through this series comes out of Galatians towards the end of the book in Galatians 5, 5, 1. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let me repeat that. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, say, for freedom. To reset the table, a few reminders. First, a reminder just that Paul is writing to a collection of churches in the province of Galatia, which is located in ancient Asia Minor, or rather, in modern day, in the modern day country of Turkey, in the central part of Turkey. Paul is writing from prison. These churches in uh, Galatia, they were originally founded by Paul during Paul's ministry in the region. However, in the days since their founding, they've come under the influence of unorthodox teaching from a group that is referred to in biblical scholarship as the Judaizers. Now, what the Judaizers, what they've begun to teach in the Galatian churches is that in order to faithfully follow Jesus, one must essentially become Jewish in addition to placing one's faith in Jesus. Practically, they're requiring Gentile Christians to become circumcised, as well as observe some other aspects of Jewish faith, in addition to professing their faith in Jesus. Now, in short... What the Judaizers, they're doing, they are adding aspects of Jewish religious observance to faith in Jesus. It's, it's, it's Jesus plus other things that saves you. It's Jesus plus rituals, Jesus plus deeds, Jesus plus, Jesus plus. And it's, it's this addition to Jesus that Paul is addressing quite forcefully in his letter to the Galatians. Paul appeals to, uh, in the letter, he's appealing to theology, he's appealing to logic, he's appealing to experiences, all of which in order to get his point across that salvation in Christ comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, it's not Jesus plus. And any other additions to this, they are a form of religious and spiritual slavery, a slavery that Jesus abolished on the cross. And what Paul wants the church in Galatia to know, and by extension us, He wants us to experience the full liberation, the full freedom that Jesus offers. Paul wants to walk the church in Galatia out of the land of the lost that they have been led into by the Judaizers and back to the way of Christ purchased, Christ offered, Christ giving freedom. Now, 
there gets to be some technical language in here. So let me review some of this. And for the previous two weeks, Justin and Andrea, they've been helping us examine Paul's opening arguments where he's positioning the difference between law and faith. For Paul, on the one side of the ledger is the law, and on the other side is that of faith. And for the sake of our time this morning, uh, or when you hear or whenever you read um, in Galatians the word law, you can think of um, the Ten Commandments. You can think of all of the laws that are given in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You can think of the simple lists of laws and then the more complex lists of laws. They are all the culmination of all of the things required of Israel to live in a manner pleasing to God. In the first five books of the Bible, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there are 613 different rules laid out for the people of Israel to follow. Now, something to keep in mind, just to say that the Bible is not a rule book, but rather it's a storybook. Now, of course, as soon as you say that, you're probably thinking, yo, but Matthew, look, you just said that in the first five books of the Bible, there's over 600 laws. And yo, I can't do the math real quick, but that's something in the neighborhood of 122.6 laws per book. And you would be right. But here's the thing. The Bible is ultimately a story of God's work to redeem humanity and renew creation. For those of you that have been participating in our recent seminar on understanding the Bible, you'll be familiar with some of this language. In the seminar, one of the things that we discussed was the ways that the Bible holds together as a single narrative with a single story aimed at communicating to humanity God's love and purpose for restoring humanity into right relationship with God, with others, and with the world around them. This is the single story of the Bible. In the Old Testament, the way that the story unfolds, particularly in the first five books, is that humanity rebels against God and God's love and does so repeatedly. And each time, God gives some instructions on how to restore and how to make things right. Things are made right, and then Israel rebels again, and God returns and he heals, and he gives additional instructions on how to live in a way that displays their love towards God and God's love towards them. Israel rebels again, and then God gives more instructions. And it's in this cyclical pattern of rebellion and restoration that this expansive list of laws gets established. Sometimes the laws, there are ones that deal with personal holiness. Other times there are laws that deal with interpersonal dealing. Sometimes the laws are ones that deal with matters of justice or economics or compassion. Other times the laws deal with just matters of worship and piety. But every time that the laws are established, they are responses to ways that God's people have turned away from the ways and promises of God and sought to make for themselves another way that ultimately led to brokenness and isolation. So it isn't that God takes five books in the Old Testament and then lays out all the laws and rules and regulations that he requires. I think that's probably how most of the time we imagine what the law is. But rather, it is in those books, there's a story. And in that story is a cycle of rebellion and then God's response of restoration that culminates in adjustments to the relationship. Adjustments articulated in the rules that God has then given. Adjustments to the relationship that God has with his people. But all of it is bound in restoration. Now, the shorthand for this pattern of rebellion and restoration and instructions that comes from this pattern, the shorthanded, like, 
abbreviated way to say that story is to say the law. And the painful truth was that people were never able to keep the law. They were never able to live in a manner that was faithful to the relationship with God. And something or someone was needed to break the cycle and create a way, not just for more rules or better laws, but rather to create a new heart, a new humanity that could begin to walk with God more faithfully and walk with humanity and creation more justly. And Jesus was the break in this pattern. Jesus was the one who was able to hold in his life and in his person all of the requirements of the law and take on in his death the consequences of the rebellion. Jesus on the cross took on the isolation and the brokenness that results from turning away from God's love. And in Jesus' resurrection, a way was made for those whose faith was in Jesus, a way was made for them to lay hold of the new heart and the new life and the new humanity that Jesus affords and the Spirit of God gives rise to. And yet... The Judaizers in Galatia were teaching the church there that in order to be a Christian, in order to receive this new life that Jesus was offering by grace through faith, the Judaizers were demanding that they follow, that the followers A, say yes to Jesus, but also B, keep all of the law. And what Paul is writing to the church is saying, you're you're lost. They were teaching uh, that the Galatians had to continue to do the things that they were never able to fully do. This is why Paul begins in chapter 3 and verse 1 so strongly. He says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. As theologian and author and Pastor Justin's dad, Donald, Dr. Ronald Fong notes, Paul is immediately addressing the superiority of the gospel doctrine of faith to the Galatian agitators and their law-oriented version of Christianity. The foolish conduct of, of teaching the Galatian Judaizers is all the more tragic because Paul is lifting up the event that altered all of human history, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, which Paul says that they witnessed before their very eyes. If only the Galatians had continued to fix their eyes on Jesus, they would not have been caught in the trap of fascination with false teachers. Paul continues his argument in chapter 3, and he's pointing to the folly of believing that something uh, was needed to be added to faith in Jesus. In verse 2 and following, he lays out a series of rhetorical questions meant to further his point. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 2, he says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Whereas in Galatians 2, Paul is showing the difference between law on the one hand and faith on the other. Now in chapter 3, he's furthering his argument by similarly showing the work of the Spirit of God on the one hand and the work of the flesh or the work that one does on one's own apart from God on the other. It's this this, uh, parallel 
of faith and spirit on the one side versus law and flesh on the other that Paul is wanting to use to illustrate that nothing beyond faith in Christ is required for life in Christ. Paul is reminding the Galatians and us that the work of salvation, the work of of freedom and liberation, it's always the work of God. It is always initiated by God and it is always sustained by God. The work that we do, the, the that we participate in, the the freedom that we walk in, the the, the joy that we experience, the justice we pursue, the the compassion we display, the love that we have, it is all in right response to what God has done on our behalf. It is not done so that we can be right with God. It is done because God loved us first. For if our freedom was secured by our own hand, then it would need to be sustained by our own hand. And as the Bible consistently shows, I mean, Goodness, as our lives consistently show, we don't have the best righteousness, justice, love, compassion, mercy, sustaining power. But but thanks be to God that God does. Another way that I've that I've heard it said from other preachers is whatever is started in the spirit will be sustained by the spirit. But whatever started in the flesh has to be sustained in the flesh. In um, his commentary on uh, the book of Galatians, Anglican uh, Bishop uh, N.T. Wright, he tells the story of a French acrobat, Charles Blondin. Charles Blondin executed a series of tightrope walks across the Niagara Falls in the summer of 1859. I'm afraid of heights. I wouldn't even go and watch that, to be honest with you. Blondin walked across at different times. He, he cartwheeled across on a tightrope that stretched across Niagara Falls. He drove a wheelbarrow across. One time he walked all the way from Canada to the United States backwards on a tightrope. But on one occasion, he took a friend, took a buddy of his, a guy named Harold Colcord, took him on his back, and piggyback walked him across on a tightrope. With Harry like clinging to Charles Blondin's back, they slowly made their way across. Newspapers that were reporting at the time, they said that a few of the guy wires began to snap as they made their traverse, but nonetheless, the rope held and they made it across. Wright goes on to say, and reflecting on this old story, he says, now suppose halfway across, the man said to Blondin, hey, look here, thanks for getting me going on this, but I think I'd do better if I can go the rest of the way by myself. You can let me down, I'll walk from here. The thought would have been absurd. Best thing that the man could do was to cling to the one that got him going in the first place. For how he started was going to be the best way for him to finish. Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone sustains. What the church in Galatia was considering, it was just that. Though they realized Jesus was the one who got them going on the road of faith, they began to believe that they could still manage better under their own strength. And in that belief was the cycle of tragedy that was Israel's story since the book of Genesis. Galatians is is, is also a cautionary tale to us. There certainly is a working out of our faith. There are things in our lives that are produced as a result of our faith in Jesus. The work of, of, of outward justice or the work of inner healing, the work of, of seeing God's beauty in the world around us, the work of, of pushing for things like affordable housing and education equity, the work of seeing others come to faith, 
Though we participate in it, it's not ours to do on our own, and it certainly isn't what qualifies us in the eyes of God. Yes, God calls us to the work. Don't get it bent. It is part of the life of a follower of Jesus. But it isn't what gains us entry into God's family or provides the pathway to citizenship and God's kingdom. If we believe that it is, if we believe that our work for humanity in the name of God is what opens the doors of salvation, then then it seems as though Paul would call that a different form of circumcision. But rather, we engage in that work, work that stirs our souls and at times even leaves us exhausted. We faithfully engage in this work of faith from a place of freedom that is found in Jesus and sustained by Jesus through faith in Jesus. In Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus describes his work in this way in Luke 19.10. He says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Sometimes we get lost by accident. Sometimes it's on purpose. Our own stubbornness or forgetfulness or whatever the case. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's just hard to believe that all Jesus asks of us is to believe in him, to trust his love, to trust his embrace of us just as we are. We're tempted to think that that it's our work, our effort, our ingenuity that is a prerequisite for God's full love of us. And if we're not careful, we'll erect other uh, requisites that others have to accomplish before they can join us in God's work in the world. But none of that is the case. Paul tells the Galatians and us that the gospel is that God loved us first and continues to love us first. And what we're invited into is that love. And all we bring is faith in Jesus. It doesn't even have to be a strong faith. It don't have to be like a robust faith. It can be a weak faith, a faith mixed with doubt, new faith. It can be like faith with questions and faith with objections. Because it isn't even the quality of our faith that matters. It's the object of our faith, which is Jesus. And that is what finds us when we're lost. That's what sustains us when we're weary. That's what we cling to when the tightrope wires seem dangerously thin, that is what saves us and frees us every single time. I pray that this morning that whatever it is that you have sought to cling to other than Jesus, your work, your justice-seeking, your, your disciplines, your dedication, whatever it is that you have felt justifies you in the eyes of God, I pray that you would lay those down and cling relentlessly to the Jesus and to Christ alone and experience the freedom of his love toward you. And then from that place, from the place of freedom, then God invites you into a life of loving others, of loving our world, into a life of of peacemaking and justice-seeking and compassion-giving and disciple-making. There'll be time for that. But above all, cling to Jesus and his great love toward you. For it is Christ and Christ alone that offers freedom in the deepest parts of us.